Hi, Alex. Are you okay? I am. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And hello to everybody else. You are listening to the Sober Experiment podcast by Be Sober with host, me, myself, Lisa, and Alex over there. Me. (laughs) (laughs) And we're really, really pleased to have you with us. Yes, we are. We're excited. We've got a cracking show. Is that what you say? Um, We've got a cracking podcast episode for you. It is season... 11 episode 2 season 11 Alex I don't even know how this happened and actually in reality we've done miles more than 11 seasons because we're down to about 6 to 8 episodes in a season now and our first season was like 30 episodes or something stupid (laughs) I didn't know you had seasons back then did we? We didn't we we did but we just got excited (laughs) (laughs) we just went all in too quickly Episode 28. Should we should we be doing this still? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But we're here. We, how long have we been doing this for now? It's like four years. Can you believe we've been recording a podcast for four years? I can't even believe I've been sober for over that amount of time. Never mind recording a podcast. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I know. Like, it is amazing though. I know we're like saying well done and stuff like that and we do talk quite flippantly but I think we forget just how amazing what we've done is and what everybody who listens to this is doing or has done is. You know what I'm going to have to say this but I think you speak for yourself there because I never (laughs) ever forget (laughs) like as in I don't forget how incredible it is and I think because we've got like our be so you meant to speak for myself that it wasn't amazing I was like oh (laughs) no no I mean that like you know what right it's the same as I live in a really beautiful area and we've got a lake that we go by and every time I walk around the lake with a new friend they go oh we just forget don't we we never appreciate it and I'm like can we leave the week? Because I actually love it. I, I know really, really enjoy it. And I think that's the same with my sobriety is that I do still wake up and feel grateful for everything it's given me. So it's not like I'm waking up and battling another day or thinking about drink or I don't do any of that, but I do feel really grateful and remember very often that it's because I stopped drinking why I am doing what I'm doing and where I am if that makes sense yeah no I think it does and I think it's good that you remember every day but I think sometimes some of us including me have a tendency to forget just our amazing sobriety the fact that we've done it and you know why I think I forget and maybe I am speaking for myself here because it's just a normal part of my life now yeah and it does it does become a normal part yeah I think so I, so I think sometimes I think I forget that what I've done is a rebellious act, a brave act, and something that's taken away from the norm. So, but anyway, a very rebellious act, which is very appropriate for today's guest. Actually. It is, and it wasn't meant to be. Now, today's guest, right? Lisa and I, when we very, very, very first started doing, before we were Be Sober as a whole, there was Be Sober Manchester and we had a very small company that we called The Sober Experiment. And that's why our podcast is called that. And the very first thing we ever did as the Sober Experiment was a workplace presentation for um, a market research company in Manchester. Yeah. And we went along to this and we'd done a lot of research and we found this particular person online as an ex-government drug, I'm going to say 
drug official. Yeah, I'll just say that one of the government officials. And we're not going to give too much away because actually we don't really know the full story and we hope to uh, find out a little bit about it. But we actually talk about some of the work that he did and does in our very first workplace presentation. And we still do it to this day, don't we? Yeah. Like yeah. a lot, you know, one of the things um, that kept me sober was that rebellious act of like when I first found out like during my sober journey and especially in the beginning and you're delving into it and you start seeing things and once you see it you can't unsee it and one of the things for me was how much the government made from alcohol and it was a really really big kind of thing for me to go you know what I'm not being a part of that. You can stuff off. You are not having my money, especially when you've, we know how much funding they've cut. We've got charities that are absolutely desperate for government funding to carry yeah. on doing what they're doing. Nakua being one of them that yeah. really struggle with this. Um, and I just think the amount of money that the government makes from people buying alcohol is Billions, absolutely billions. billions. Yeah, and, and um, it, was so, it in the five billions back then? Oh my gosh, I can't. It, it was I, something like a, an income of over five billion with a cost of over three billion. We'll see if we can remember these figures for us, or if he knows the current figures. But it was in the billions, and they what, what you often hear when you're talking about this is, yeah, but. Um, you know, drinking costs so much. So when you, when you hear about your alcoholics and how much they cost the economy, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but they don't cost nearly as much as they make, do they? Not even nearly. Like, it's a ridiculous... Sorry, George is at it, Tony. It's ridiculous. all morning. It is a ridiculous amount of money. And... and I suppose where I get really upset is that people still blame the individual for their drinking and how much they cost the NHS and how much they damage things. And actually, there's a whole reason behind that in that the government aren't really dissuading anyone from drinking because it's profitable. That is the top and bottom of it, isn't it? It's a profitable business still can't get over is during the pandemic I remember going to my local um shop up the road for the post office yeah and to get to my post office counter it was shoulder high with boxes of alcohol it is literally it was covered and that was during the pandemic so they were limiting all these other things and all these shops had closed or not yet alcohol was so so readily available it's crazy isn't it so I think it's probably time for us to introduce our guest and if you've not guessed already that is you might have done if you remember from our live that we did this morning but we actually have well it was would have been a few days ago now because we're out Saturday Professor David Nutt and he is a world-renowned neuropsychopharmacologist I'm so glad I've managed to say that word I'm glad you've said that and not me that's why I didn't even ask you (laughs) specialising in the research of drugs that affect the brain with a focus on alcohol. And he's also the co-founder of Sentia, the world's first GABA spirit. Now, we have quite a lot of questions about this, don't we? Yeah. We do. We have quite a lot of questions. So you might see and feel that the podcast is slightly more serious, but by no means boring. 
So let's get him in. So hopefully Professor Nock can hear us now and he's going to unmute and switch his camera on. Okay. <laughs> Here he is. Victor's better. Hi. Hello sorry. there. Hi. Sorry. It's been a... Right. I'm with you. So relieved. <laughs> we were starting to panic, but only because we were, we were supposed to do two podcasts today, and the first guest didn't was a complete no show. We don't even know what's happened to him. <laughs> okay, we, you've got me till two, all right? We have, yeah. And we're so happy. You know what? What you need to hear is we've just kind of talked about this in our intro, but we have both since the start of Be Sober over four and a half years ago. We've been using your harmful scale in our workplace talks and we have been like so like in, intrigued by that data and been desperate to speak to you about it. Okay. Well, so, talk away. Talk away. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So can, I, th- I guess the first thing to say is obviously I'm Alex and Lisa's with us as well. Um, Hi. <laughs> I am here. <laughs> I got two of you now. Yes. You're in you June. do. You have both of us. And you're very I, lucky. There's lots of people that would love to be in your position right now, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess we want to start with could you explain the concept of the harmful scale to us and how it's used to determine the relative dangers of the different substances? And obviously, with a focus on alcohol, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, this. Uh, this scale of harms that you refer to, it's be, that little graph has become a kind of meme, hasn't it, for drug harms? It, yeah. So it's my most cited paper. It's had the most number of other papers comment on it. Over 2,000 other papers have, have mentioned that paper because of the scale of harms. How it emerged is, uh, it's back to two, about 2,000. And then I, in 2000, I was asked to join the... Um, government's committee called the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. And they wanted me to chair their scientific committee. And I said I, I would do that, but I um, only if I was uh, allowed to develop a way of assessing the harms of drugs properly, because I sat in on one of their committee meetings to see if I could kind of cope with it. And it was so <laughs> old-fashioned and arbitrary. You know, people saying, how dangerous is this drug? Oh, I think it's like this. I can't, I can't work, you know, it's, we've got to do it properly. So they said yes, interestingly. And for four years, I worked with the Home Office developing a, a nine-point scale of harm. And that was published in The Lancet in 2007. And it created quite a stir uh, because it because it actually did include alcohol and tobacco. And alcohol wasn't at the top then. Alcohol was fourth, I think. Well, okay. but when that paper was published... This a man called Larry Phillips, who's a professor at London School of Economics and an expert in what's called decision theory. He wrote to me, he said, David, you know, it's not a bad job, but there are better ways of doing this kind of assessment. You could use this multi-criteria decision analysis. And of course, I'd never heard of it because it, it's uh, it's very much more in, uh, in the sort of social sciences. Um, but I met with him and he's a very you know, companion guy and, and his justification using it was that it had actually been used by the government to make decisions, a very complicated decision very recently, um, which was where to put nuclear waste. All right. You know, nuclear waste is pretty controversial and, and there are many options. You know, you can fire it into space or you can drink great holes in the ground or you can put it in big, big con- concrete containers. So very, very controversial, very, di- very divisive. But he managed through a series of these uh, meetings uh, with with various stakeholders. They came to the what was an agreed decision. 
a harmonious decision, which was actually the, the deep burying, which is what we do today. So we thought, well, that's if it can work for that, it could probably work for the, the dissent over, over drugs and drug harms. So we uh, set up with the Home Office and with um, the Medical Research Council, they funded a, a conference to to do just that. And, uh, and, and we did it. And, and there are three kind of important steps in that decision. The first is you've got to work out what the harms of drugs are. Mm-hmm. And that's not a trivial thing to do. It, it took 30 of us a weekend to work out all the different harms of drugs. Uh, and it turned out that there were, um, you can categorize them into 16 different harms. Mm-hmm. Or nine harms to, be, to the user of the drugs and seven harms to society. And then you have to get a definition for each of those harms. It is applicable. And that, so we spent a weekend actually coming, working out what to do. And then we spent another two days doing it. Uh, and the doing it essentially takes drugs. We took 20 drugs, some legal, some illegal, some medicine, some not. Uh, and uh, we ranked them all. So the next important phase is to, is to rank on each of those 16 variables where each drug is. Mm-hmm. With 100 being at the, the most harmful and the bottom one being one or zero. So then you do all that. And then the third critical point is you then uh, give weights to them. Because you've got 16 variables and they go for everything from how likely you are to die every time you take the drug to what's happening in Afghanistan when they're burning poppy fields, you know, the international damage. So, and each of the, the, those clearly have different values to different groups of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, the, in the British uh, review we did, um, the, the, the one, the, the harm that was given the greatest value was, uh, was the economic cost. And on that particular scale, the economic costs of alcohol were number one. And that's one of the reasons why alcohol came out on top. But then basically you, you weight all those 16 different levels of harm against each other and then you, you change the scoring according to how the, uh, the what the weightings go. So if something is weighted half of the top, then you downgrade the scores for that particular um, parameter by 50%. And out of it, then you put it into a computer program and it chugs away for a bit and out of it comes the results. And the results are essentially two measures, a measure of how harmful a substance is to the person and how harmful a substance is to society. Mm-hmm. And somewhat to my surprise, alcohol came out overall as top, largely because of the huge harm to society. Well, I, yeah. we, I've already talked about the economic harm, but there are, you know, there are social harms and disruption of family life and violence and criminality, etc. So, so alcohol is the most harmful drug, probably because it's most widely used. Yeah, yeah, and so, it's not it's not to be mistaken, is it? That with like almost danger because you drink alcohol on one occasion, as long as you're not kind of overdosing on that one occasion, you're unlikely to die on that one occasion. It's not the same as kind of mortality, is it? No, that's right. So, I mean, a really good example of the differences is is actually because um, you can die just drinking. I mean, three young people a week in Britain die of alcohol poisoning. They just get so but the, the bigger the better example is tobacco smoking. Yeah. I mean, no one ever dies with their first cigarette, but they think they are, but they I was gonna say I thought yeah. I was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you persevere, don't you? Because you think that <laughs> you hold at the end of that rainbow. Um so 
in terms of the acute, you know, the, the likelihood of dying anytime you take a cigarette, very low, but the likelihood of smoking killing you over time is very high. So, our, so cigarettes go from scoring very low on the likelihood of immediate death to being second only to heroin as the, the cause of death in the long term due to chronic use. Yeah, I mean, when we do when we do the talks and we refer to that, the number of people that will say heroin as the most harmful drug because they're purely thinking about how likely are you to die on the first use, and they're not thinking about what harm means, is is quite significant. Yeah, absolutely, and of course we know uh, we don't don't use the, the um, approach enough, but we do know how to very significantly reduce the harms of heroin. You know, for instance, people take them in safe injecting rooms. So if they do accidentally overdose, they can be resurrected, so to speak, reversed. With alcohol, we don't actually know what to do about the harms of alcohol. There aren't any antidotes to alcohol. You can't reverse alcohol poisoning with, uh, like, in the same way as you can reverse uh, heroin poisoning with naloxone. So, so um, alcohol's quite problematic because of its wide range of different harms and intervening with each one is is kind of possible but difficult and that's of course why i've been spending the last 10 15 years trying to develop an alternative which is we really want to we're, we're going to get about to that, definitely. actually. But I know just then you said you was quite surprised that alcohol came on top. Was everybody, we're all 30 of you, like, no, this can't be. <laughs> well, we wanted, to, one of the clever things about this uh, technique is that it, everything you've done is in the computer. So you can look, you can look and you can see, okay, so alcohol's top, but is that because of the huge economic costs? And then you can say, well, let's, let's change that. Let's not put that number one. Let's, Let's get rid yeah. of that. Let's take that one out and see what happens. And pretty much it's almost impossible to to do anything to the decision to get rid of alcohol as being number one because it has such a broad range of different harms. As I said, particularly the economic cost, the family damage, yeah. the damage, et cetera. Well, unfortunately, so both of us have experienced firsthand family damage. Um, both of us have lost a parent, father, to alcohol. Both yeah. of us grew up in households where... There were impacts, different impacts, but, but impacts. But one thing that really gets me, um, I mean, both Lisa and I don't drink at all anymore, but one thing that really gets me is this whole, the idea of what's safe and what isn't safe to do. Um, I mean, my understanding, I've actually read your book. It was a while ago now, the, the book Drink. I read that a, a long while ago, actually, when you first when it first came out. But one of the things that gets to me is the... Um, is it acetaldehyde? That's the poisonous chemical. It's not the alcohol itself that, that damages. Is that right? It's not just the alcohol. Okay, thank you. I'll make sure I use that word. It's not just the alcohol. It's the actual byproducts that are made in the, meta in the metabolism of the alcohol. Um, and then we've got this whole 14 unit thing that's spouted out of that safe and the whole one unit to drive that's safe. But am I right in saying that you say only one glass of wine per year? You'll probably need to contextualise this, but only one glass of wine per year is safe. Okay, so... It, it, alcohol affects every organ system in the body, mm -hmm. uh, but it harms different systems at different levels. Okay. So let's start with that seemingly really bizarre and controversial statement. One drink a year is the safe level. Now that comes from food safety analysis. 
if alcohol was invented today and Professor Nutt discovered it and said, hey, this would be a wonderful thing to, to pour into a, sh a sherry trifle to give people a flavor and texture and some effect. And I wanted to register it as a food additive. I had to put it through food safety testing and the maximal accepted limit for consumption per person per year is a glass of wine. Now, the reason for that is because alcohol is uh, a factor. It, it, it can cause mutations of cells and is a factor in the development of cancer. Mm -hmm. So if you want to eliminate any cancer risk from alcohol, then basically you mustn't drink any alcohol. But the cancer risk from alcohol, though it's real, is not massive. I mean, it's not like smoking and lung cancer, where it's a 20-fold increase. With most cancers with alcohol, it's a one or two-fold increase. So it's 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 not it's not you can't say categorically if you stop everyone drinking, you'd get rid of most cancers. But it is, I mean, it is a relevance. For instance, it is one of the few things that, that women who've got a propensity to breast cancer, one of the few things they can do is to reduce their drinking because because we know that alcohol um, relates to to breast cancer. Now, if you then take take liver disease, liver disease, the liver is much more resilient in that sense. So if you want to avoid having uh, cirrhosis, then basically a drink a day, a unit a day, if that's you limit yourself to a unit a day, it's very, very unlikely you will get uh, alcohol-related cirrhosis. And that those two sort of feed into this question of, you know, what is what are these units? What what what's the recommended unit level? Why is it 14? And and and, and it's worth reflecting on the fact that it even 10 years ago it was 28 for men, yeah, 21 for women. Yeah. And it's brought down now to 14 for each. And a, a lot of people find that weird, but it's it, the truth is that um if you drink less than 14 units a week, the risk of alcohol harming you is really quite low mm -hmm. in the population sense. And of course, there are people who do something, would, for instance, if you were to drink all 14 units at once, then the risks are much higher. Guilty. Because, you know, <laughs> we, we were them people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, precisely. So the, the, the truth is, if you drink within... Though below those limits in a balanced way, ideally having one or two days a week when you don't drink at all, mm -hmm. the risks are slight. I mean, it, it's less than the, it's kind of, you know, less than a doubling of the risk of any particular harm that alcohol might cause. We'll get back to our chat shortly, but first let us tell you about Be Sober. At Be Sober, you'll find a supportive community of like-minded people who understand and support you. Energize your mind and body with our fitness sessions. Discover the power of mindfulness with Be Sober Yoga. Engage in vibrant discussions, workshops and support groups with thriving Zooms. Be Sober really is the ultimate community. Whether you're sober for a short time, contemplating it or have long-term goals of making meaningful connections, it's a place where you can find your tribe and create lasting friendships. Take the first step towards an empowered and connected sober lifestyle. Join us today at besoberofficial.com.
And that's population, isn't it? Like you said, so it doesn't negate the fact that your own individual damage will vary. Absolutely. And I mean, there are people who do, I mean, there are some rare genetic uh, um, alterations where people's heart will stop when they drink alcohol and they die. I mean, people do die. This is the first time. I've, I had two sisters in my clinic who developed a very strange syndrome, which is called um, Klein-Levin syndrome, which is the sort of sleeping beauty syndrome, where they, after their first glass of alcohol, when they were 16, and they f fell asleep for two days, we thought, this is so weird. And then the sister became 16, and she did the same. And we realized, you know, they're just very, very vulnerable to this sort of um, anesthetic effects of alcohol. So there are there are big individual variations, in, in although most of them are quite rare. The biggest problem is that there are some people for whom even a couple of glasses, a couple of units of alcohol will change their behaviours so that they cannot con constrain their behaviour, they cannot contain their behaviour. And, and then even though they want to keep to the, the limits that they've set themselves as targets, they yeah. fail. And that is the biggest problem. Alcohol, more than any other drug, tends to encourage loss of control so all the best intentions disappear. You know, it's really weird thinking about it. When we was at school, so in our area drinking, we started drinking very young. So it was like 13, 14, we was going out to the local park, drinking white lightning. Um, and we had a friend and nearly every other week, and why she kept doing it, I don't know, but nearly every other week she had to have a stomach pumped yeah, yeah. because she drank that much and yeah. as we got older she stopped drinking very sensibly so a long time before I did and we used to chat and be like oh Zoe you know she's allergic to alcohol as if she was really rare like the only person in the world that couldn't drink alcohol yeah well I mean I've I've got four children and uh, it was quite interesting um, going through their <laughs> watching them go through puberty, going through parties. And, uh, you know, the number of kids we've had to take to casualty because they turned up so drunk, they'd smuggle in half bottles of Bacardi, not not understanding that half a bottle of Bacardi can lay you out, and you, you know, and if you vomit. You know, we've had kids lying on the floors in, in recovery positions. There was actually one of my daughters, you know, I heard that she, she was in a particularly, um, I suppose, sort of uh, experience, Experimental group of kids sounds like a bit like you. And every time <laughs> one child would go to hospital, one girl would go to hospital because yeah. they just didn't know the dangers of alcohol. They just thought it was great to get drunk. And by the time they were drunk, there was so there's so much else was in their body that they couldn't sober up. It was very unfair. We just weren't really educated in alcohol, I suppose. And like Alex and I were both brought up in in pubs. So it was just kind of a normal thing that when we got older, we would drink. It was expected and it was kind of expected from our teachers that as teenagers, we would be going out drinking. It's so bizarre to me now, but it was really normal back then. And it's that's been one of the great changes in the last 20 years or so, is it? that it used to be that, you know, if you weren't drunk on a regular basis, then you weren't really even being a teenager. Yeah. But now that there are a, a proportion of teenagers are resisting that and saying, you know, actually, we don't want to be like that generation. And and I think it's partly because what they don't want to do is 
have videos taken on people's mobile phones of them behaving. Yeah. yeah. Because, of you course, know. it wasn't around when we were younger and you could get away with a little bit more. <laughs> no, you absolutely, you absolutely could. Yeah. Yeah. And, but also, I think, you know, you know, the fact that we're having this discussion today, I mean, that, you know, it tells the world that this wasn't happening. There weren't people having podcasts about being sober 20 years no. ago. <laughs> being sober was a, being sober told the world or the world interpreted your sobriety as being you were a failure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and you couldn't control your drink, you know, you've just given in, you know, and now we, you know, we don't, most of us, I hope, don't believe that. No, I think, I think you're right. And, you know, both of us, again, you know, my dad um, stopped drinking in 2002. Well, you know, everybody knew, and I will use his words, that he was an alcoholic because he stopped drinking. They knew it because people who weren't alcoholics didn't stop drinking. <laughs> We're absolutely right. The stigma, and then of course that feeds into this this whole um, uh, attempt by you know, which is still quite common. People who drink try to they don't like people not drinking. They want to they want to encourage you to drink. I don't know if you've you know they the, don't trust you. <laughs> yeah, I, well, and I was, yeah, I mean it's it's a I don't know. There's not been much research asking those people who are trying to goad non-drinkers into drinking as to why they do it, but I, I think it's. Because they, you know, it's well, it, some it's bullying. I think to some extent, yeah. To some extent, it's kind of it's you know, it's, it's wanting you to be part of the herd. You know, you're yeah. standing apart from them. You know, maybe you know they don't like the fact you're not buying your round. You know, there'll be there'll be yeah. various factors. Spotlight syndrome as well. You know, like putting the light on your drinking. If somebody's sober next to you, you look more drunk. <laughs> no, that's a that's a yeah. I hadn't thought about that. That's a that's actually quite a good point. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah, it sort of highlights their failings. I Can think we cry? Is, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> you go. I was just going to say, I think this is why we are so passionate about like Be Sober and what we do and our community because removing the stigma was a really big dream of mine when I first stopped drinking. It was really hard for me to tell my friends and my family that I decided to not drink anymore. Um, it's five and a half years ago since I made that decision. but I, And it now seems so bizarre to me that so many people were offended by my decision to stop drinking. And I thought something has to be done about this. Well, absolutely. And it is, you know, it, it, it's kind of weird. I mean, I find it quite disturbing. <laughs> You know, people making sensible health decisions should be vilified. So yeah, others won't do it. I mean, it is. It really is. It's, it's a sad commentary on the on the immaturity of of our society, isn't it? We should be celebrating you. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that we kind of help with that now, don't we, Alex? With Shift our in the narrative, we, yeah. We, yeah. We celebrate being sober. And, you know, we've done interviews in the past um, with and TV ones, and they asked us to do an interview, but could we avoid using the word sober? Because people didn't like it. And mm -hmm. honestly, we was like, but we're called be sober. <laughs> I don't know how to avoid that word. We didn't. <laughs> avoid it Lisa we yeah. didn't no, avoid we didn't. it I know I think the first sentence I'd said it but can we ask you then what what's your personal relationship with alcohol like well it's definitely a lot less than it was in the past <laughs> but also because of you know now uh, the more I researched it of course the more circumspect I've become um 
you know, there were t- I have I must confess there were times when I have been drunk and I've had terrible hangovers and I've said never again and <laughs> Uh, it, it wasn't I just can't funny. imagine that, Professor, you being all drunk and hungover and never again. <laughs> no. Well, I was a student. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the, 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 my relationship with alcohol changed quite dramatically when I had children. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's nothing worse. It's, it's impossible to, to have children and a hangover simultaneously, or at least for someone yeah. like me, you know, who was... Uh, uh, Obviously, rather, rather a wimp. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I've made it work. Not well, but I've made it work. <laughs> yes, quite. But they, you know, they they definitely aggravate it, don't they? And uh, and also the se- you know the sense of responsibility. And then I suppose I played a lot of sport as well. So I, you know, and it, that filled up quite a lot of time that you could have spent drinking. So if you're actually Playing badminton. Yeah. So I think, and that's actually one of the things I encourage people to do. If you know, if, you know, exercise is a, a good way of maintaining a, 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 a sense of mental wellness as well as um, yeah, you fit. And also, you know, it is difficult to drink if you are doing a lot of sports. You know, particularly if you're doing sport with people that also want to do it well, because that, you know, apart from there are not so many sports now where drinking is the sort of the purpose of the sport. It's it, <laughs> most people now want to want sport to be the purpose and the drink is sort of incidental so unless you're the local rugby team of course i believe that they still put away quite a bit between them on there well yes i mean rugby is yeah i mean rugby is <laughs> and actually a lot of hockey i mean hockey is also pretty bad i mean there's yeah. um yeah and we're trying to break that culture break the, the culture of drinking games after sports that is that is actually a, something that is very damaging to students and one of, the, yeah. one of the campaigns we've been putting, one of the points we've been putting out, I think in my book I say this, you know, the universities used to sponsor um, university sports clubs uh, and they would, could use some of that money for drinking. I and mean, we've made it very clear that they shouldn't happen. You shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be able to subsidise drinking in sports clubs because it's it's not only harmful, but it also encourages uh, people to get into the habit of drinking. You know, exactly. Something- counterproductive counterintuitive as well isn't it how can you preach well-being on one hand and then give people something harmful on the other and it's just it's only when you step back from it now like lisa and i we can't believe that you know things like a lot of the the big um like dieting groups the slimming groups even lots of gyms will say oh if you drink gin You'll have less calories, you'll have fewer calories, but we're not actually thinking of the holistic view of what the alcohol is doing to, to people's well-being. No, actually, and that's, it's become, there's a sort of new development, sort of, sort of spritzer waters, which are, you know, they, so you put the gin into something that has no calories, like water, but it's fizzy, with a view to reducing the metabolic load. But the reality is it's the alcohol is going to do way more damage. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about then because you've got a new-ish drink on the market. Let let's talk about the benefits of that. In fact, just talk about it. Tell us all about your your brand that you've co-founded, what the benefits are, and so on. So we've we've set up a company a few years ago called Gabba Labs, trying to target the Gabba system. Gabba is one of the key um, chemicals in the brain that makes the brain work, and it's the chemical that calms you down and. It uh, helps you relax. And the reason most people drink is to 
overcome a bit of anxiety and to relax and to chill out and to have fun with their friends. It, it's a very much a social drug. And that's, it does that through the GABA system. So having spent 30 years trying to come up with antidotes to alcohol and treatments for craving and treatments for withdrawal, uh, in 2005, when I was in favour with the government, I was on the uh, foresight panel, and we realised that alcohol is such a promiscuous drug, you could never deal with all the consequences. So it suddenly, we had a brainstorm, why don't we replace it? And then I started looking into the concept, you know, what does alcohol do? And it turns out that the good effects of alcohol are through enhancing GABA in the brain, and the bad effects are through many other systems. So I thought, well, maybe we can mimic GABA in the brain. And so I started looking for, for small molecules that could do that. And on the way, we discovered that a number of herbs, which have been used for many centuries in Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine, but also in Western, Western sort of um, traditional uh, food and drink, they contain substances which do turn on the GABA system. So then we created a, a cocktail of different herbs to do that. We call it uh, um, a GABA spirit, and it enhances GABA a little bit, equivalent to sort of half a unit of alcohol, to, to take away some of that anxiety that people have when they're beginning to socialise. We call it sentia. That's Italian for feeling. You know, you have a better feeling when you drink it. And and it's been, you know, quite popular. People are using it now and instead of alcohol, or they're alternating a sentia and alcohol to reduce how much they drink of a night. And then now, now my whole, you know, in the week, I only drink Sentia and I just reserve uh, uh, maybe my wine drinking, you know, to uh, uh, Saturday or, or Sunday nights. And actually, that's also been very good because it, uh, it means that I can work very productively all through the week. Without- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so does it, um, does it do what it says on the tin or on the bottle? Does it actually, can you feel that relaxing effect when you have a drink of it? Yeah, most people can, yes. Um, people who are very heavy drinkers, I often don't feel much. But for most of us, yeah, you begin, and it is kind of eerily similar in some ways, because you you begin to get that sense of sort of slight relaxation around your th- throat, you know, with alcohol. You say, well, I know I've had a drink now. And then, and then you begin to feel a little bit more animated and you start to engage and looking at people in the eyes a bit more and, and you're interacting. And, of course, that's the great the reason alcohol is such a powerful um social mediator is because once you've started talking to other people, you get that positive feedback that the feedback from them is so rewarding that you kind of engage in that, that virtuous circle as we're doing now, when you're talking to each other and you're, you're enjoying what the other's saying, you're interacting with them facially, you know, there's all, all the very, all the positive upcomings from social interactions. And would it take away or is it, is it addictive in any sort of way? Is it like, you know, like vaping for cigarettes yeah. or anything like that? Is it more of a gateway to recovery or is it, I mean, basically I'm interested in the science and the chemistry behind how it works in the brain. Yeah. yeah so that's a really interesting question. Um, I, so we've, we don't encourage not people who are sober, deliberately sober, who've had an alcohol problem to drink it because we cannot, say categorically that it couldn't trigger a relapse. Uh-huh. Yeah. We've been going for three years, only one person has actually said it did. And we've had a lot of, what's strange and very, very comforting is that we've quite often had people come up to us and say, you don't know this, but I've been dry for 20 years and I'm, you know, I, I'm 
drinking your drink in it and I'm enjoying it and I'm not feeling any cravings. So, so we've got quite a body of anecdotal evidence that it, it doesn't s- seem to provoke um, a relapse mm-hmm. in, in, in presumably in very few, only in very few people. And that I think is largely because it doesn't do what, People who get who drink very heavily are not drinking for GABA. They're drinking for some of the other effects. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting to know. Yeah, yeah, it's reassuring to know as well. Yeah, yeah, no, very reassuring to yeah to me because it is, you know there are people who say well even if they have an you know a non-alcoholic they have a seed lip, it starts they start to you know that just the being having a gin and tonic like thing in their head is can induce cravings. But but we haven't had as I say only one. Of you know tens of thousands of people who've um, who've drunk it have actually said that to us. So so we think it's not likely to lead to dependence because it, okay. it doesn't seem to trigger dependence if we were dependent. We don't get withdrawal. It's actually it's interesting how people write to me and say they're sleeping much better, and and that's probably because their sleep was being disrupted by alcohol. And, yeah, and, yeah, I was going to say that if they have actually exchanged the alcohol for that yeah. drink, it is going to make a huge, huge difference, isn't even it? Even cutting down with it, though, you know, even if you're thinking, oh, well, I'm not going to go fully sober, but just like you've said, I'm going to drink the cents here in the week, and then I'm going to save my few units for the weekend. Even that is reducing the damage on the body, isn't it, over long term? Totally, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely reduces. It. And it's funny how I notice it now. So I, 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 if I do have a couple of glasses of wine on a Saturday night, I definitely wake up earlier than I would normally. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you'll be. You know what? I can't believe that with all this knowledge and everything that you've done, that you <laughs> still don't. have a couple of glasses of wine at the weekend. Like, well, I don't why do I do that? I, got, I do that because I got a seller load. I got to get through. <laughs> <laughs> this is like I'll start Monday. I did this yeah. for Christmas. I'll start That's in the new year. <laughs> you know what I would love you to do is go and have a look at our sober experiment because we offer it free to everybody. We do uh-huh. free. 30-day sober experiment and um, every day they get like a little email and a video of either me and Alex and we explain the benefits of not drinking and it's for anybody that because we know and you know even having a couple of glasses of wine at the weekend can have Mm. like it's not really great for you (laughs) no it's it's interesting and I think that my problem is I'm old and conditioned you know I mean I've been drinking alcohol for over 50 years so it's I'm a bit too old to change you know leopards and no you're not we've got a 70 year old in our group she's now doing retreats in Bali because she stopped drinking how old did you just say she is well she's not far off she'll go mad when she is this back she isn't 70 (laughs) well I am I'm 72 so well I was just trying to get the point across Alex I was trying to get the point in in truth though genuinely I would really like to try this drink and I would like to you know because I, I'm not you know I'll give you a very tiny bit it's a bit boring this so I'll, I'll try and keep it short oh, I play, I'm, I'm sorry Lisa <laughs> I play the church organ on a Sunday yeah. and if I ever have a big event like a wedding or a funeral I get incredibly incredibly nervous and what I would have done in the past was genuinely had one drink yeah, to yeah. just make me feel a little bit, oh, and it wouldn't have been enough to get me drunk, but actually it's probably not the best thing to do before you go into a performance. But this isn't going to get you drunk, is it? It's not. And I, you know, that's, you, you hit on a really interesting point, which is 
there are benefits of low doses of alcohol. In fact, there are people with tremors. In a, the only thing that stops their tremor is alcohol. And, and is are, that a tremor not not induced by alcohol, or is that somebody who's got the tremors no, from alcohol? An essential tremor, yeah. So there are. So I mean, alcohol is a is a relaxing, calming drug, and some yeah. people it's very powerful. I mean, there are it, there are some sports where they don't allow you to drink because it is it improves your performance because you have less tremor. Because and that's why they don't. Relaxing. By the way, the reason they don't ban alcohol in darts is because because I. Alcohol does actually improve performance in darts, but only a little bit of it, though, because you do only, go to a point. Absolutely, only a little bit. Yeah, a little, to the point where you, you know, certainly, uh, it's you, know, you don't want to be drunk. You want to, yeah, you, you want. Pop, it might even work without you knowing it, other than you know you're not quite so anxious. That yeah, it, it definitely does have darts, though, isn't it? Like it, it's kind of was centered around pubs. Was it's, a, it's a definite, huh? There, there's no doubt. Let's not take it away from that. And I'll, this is the only credit I'll give it is it the, that very, very first drink that you have gives you that moment of, oh, it, yeah. your shoulders drop. It's but a- the problem I see with that is for anyone, it's whether or not you choose to go down that road, I do believe there's a, for anyone, alcohol has the potential to become addictive. It does. It does. Whereas what was and therefore, if you become addicted or you're drinking in an amount that is no longer safe, i.e., more than one glass a year, going to get that in there. <laughs> um, you're uh, you're going to be potentially putting yourself at either risk of addiction or risk of damage. What we're saying here is you can get some of the R effect without any of the damage. Correct. That's exactly what we think. I mean, you know, I can't say you can get any damage because yeah. well, um, you get damage from eating a tomato, can't you? But well, that's right. But I mean, it can, <laughs> or drinking lots of water. So, but but the point is, it, you know, we it's it's all food grade ingredients. It's all they're all proved to be safe as far as we can over decades of use. So yes, we be, you know, we believe it's massively less harmful than alcohol. Absolutely interests me beyond belief. All of this, and Lisa, we both loved. We could talk to you all day, but we. I am really aware that you have other engagements. I would love at some point if we can get you back on to talk about psychedelics as well. I'd love to hear more about that. Can I ask just a question before before you go? Because it's been like we talk about this in our workplace talks. But about you leaving the government, so there's been reports suggesting that you either resigned or were pushed out. Please, can you just tell us what happened? Because we've kind of got to this point where we make up our own story, and we'd love to hear it from you. And we'll let you go. <laughs> oh, so it, yes, I mean, I, it starts with the Today program. I think it was the 28th of October, 2009, and I made them. Well, I mean, I told the truth on the Today yeah. program. I said alcohol is is more harmful than pretty much every other drug, and they just laughed. And I said, "No, it's true." Uh, yeah. And and then it went went completely viral. It went everywhere around the world. I mean, it was on USA Today the next day. It went everywhere. You know, the alcohol was the most harmful drug. Wow. And uh, and then they then the next day, the Home Secretary asked me to resign. And I said, I'm not resign. I mean, I can't expect a scientist to resign for telling the truth. <laughs> and I got this email back. I'm sorry. What I meant was, you're sacked. <laughs> so I was sacked, yes. Combination really? of the two. Well, do you know what? I'm going to say this, Professor. 
I'm glad you were sacked because if you weren't sacked, we wouldn't have this wonderful drink and we wouldn't have your books. So I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> I think, the, yeah, thank you. Absolutely, Alex. I think the truth is the sacking actually did ignite people's interest in the science yeah. of drugs and of alcohol. And uh, so in the long run, I suspect it, you know, it was a good thing for everyone. A bit tough for me, but, but, but for the greater good, I'm glad I went through it. Why, why do you think they did it, though? What, what do you, why is that? Why did they sack oh, you? I know, like them. you've said it, but what do you think their reasons were for doing that? Did well, they not want us to know? Did they didn't want alcohol to be considered a drug? Right. Interesting. Thank you. And it is. Oh, we still and we're still just on a last note of that. We still say drugs and alcohol when actually it is just drugs. So the way to deal with it, you know, is to say alcohol and other drugs. That's the yeah. Love it. I love that. Um, on that note. Thank you so much. I don't think we've even got time to ask you our usual question. No, we do. We've, we've, I've already told people we're going to ask this question. Right then. So our podcast motto is be brave, be kind, be sober. Which aspect of this motto do you resonate with the most right now and why? Be brave and keep on telling the truth. Yes. We love I a love truth that. seeker, Professor. Oh, we actually we, do. We yeah, love a we truth do. seeker. Keep speaking the truth. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Honestly, you don't know what it means to both of us. We're so grateful. It's been a pleasure. And I'll do it again oh. on Psychedelics, all right? We'd love oh, you Oh, yes. Thank you. We'll Please. hold you to that. Thank you so much. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. We really do appreciate your support. So to stay updated with our latest episodes, be sure to follow or subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to share the Be Sober Love with your friends, helping us reach even more people. If you're interested in learning more about the impactful work we do, or you want to become part of our incredible Be Sober community, visit our website at besoberofficial.com. There you'll find all the information you need and discover how you can get involved. We look forward to welcoming you into our community of changemakers. Until next time, be brave, be kind, and be sober. sober.